Thanks, George. Um, like George said, we are in 1 Peter 4, so there's only five chapters, so we're kind of approaching the finish line here. And I wanted to start with sort of a human interest story, except for it's a human interest story about a horse. So if you know me, like even a little bit, you know that you are totally indulging me, <laughs> totally honoring and probably humoring me as you listen to this story. Maybe it doesn't even fit with the text. I just wanted to share a story about the horse. No, I will make it fit. <laughs> so it is about the racehorse Secretariat. So I'm just going to assume most people don't know who Secretariat is, though. Maybe you do, which is great. So Secretariat was this racehorse from the 70s, early 70s. Fun fact owned by a housewife. And so Secretariat, um, the way his breeding was, like his um, sire and dam side, his sire side was like known more for like short distance races. But this owner, housewife, um, had this hunch based on the combo of the sire and the dam that he was gonna be able to do both uh, short races and long races. So she kinda takes this gamble trains them, puts them in the Kentucky Derby. Um, just a little background too, if you don't know, the Triple Crown, if you're a racetrack, racehorse person, right? Triple Crown, three races. So it's the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. And the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont are these short races. The, the, uh, the excuse me, the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness are these short races, and the Belmont is the last and the longest of them. So, right? He's bred for short distances. Puts him in the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. He wins both of those. The way he would run is that when he actually was in the starting box, he'd kind of be leaning at the starting gate. He'd kind of be leaning at the back of the box. And then when the gate would open, he would like stay in the back. And then by the time like, you know, it was close to really kicking into gear, that's when he would come from the back and win which the owner said, like, it was a, a crowd favorite. Everybody loved to watch this horse come from the back and then win, but it was rather unnerving for the owner, the trainer, and the jockey. Um, so he wins, again, the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, and they decide to put him in the Belmont. Like, today, most people, if a racehorse wins the Kentucky Derby, they people normally do not put them in any of the other races because it's such a financial liability. Like if they don't win the next ones, that value just tanks. So let's just keep it while it's good, keep them in the Kentucky Derby. But they decide to put them Kentucky Derby, Preakness, he wins. Now put them in the Belmont, which is the longest. And so the owner said, or the trainer said, you know, what most people do, the natural route to go, the human instinctive, what everybody does, when you put them in this third race, is you let them rest, right? They've just won the Kentucky Derby, they've won the Preakness, they're in their prime, they're at the top of their game. Sure, keep them conditioned, but you don't need to train them any harder. Because if you train them harder, right, there's this risk, like maybe an injury or wear and tear on their muscles and joints. And on top of that, that jockey, who's right kind of in the driving gear of how much to push the horse, that jockey who jockeyed him um, had actually trained a horse so hard that the horse had a heart attack and died. So training him harder not only is a risk that maybe he won't be at his peak, that maybe it'll be wear and tear, but there's even a risk he would die. 
But the trainer said, I just, I just have this feeling, I just have this gut feeling that with this horse, we've got to train them even harder. And so that's what they decide to do. They put him in the Belmont. When he comes out, he's in the front, which, you know, probably all of us know, like any race, like the horse in the front is putting too much at the beginning. The horse in the front never wins. And then on top of it, right, like he's a short distance runner. So everybody's watching it thinking, there's no way. He's, he's not going to make it. He's going to fade out. But then when it's time to kick it into gear, not only does he not fade out, like he still holds the record today, 50 years to the year later. Like he kicks it into gear and he's 31 lengths in front of the next horse. And so this, right, this trainer, he had a choice to do things like the natural way, the way everybody was doing it, or to do it this extraordinary way. So thank you for indulging me and in listening to the horse story. But there's kind of a metaphor and a connection here, right, to what George read in 1 Peter 4. Like, 1 Peter 4 is about the natural response to suffering. There's a human, natural way we respond to suffering. But then there's also this supernatural, this Christian way to respond to suffering. So 1 Peter 4, from the beginning, right, right in verse 1, he explicitly says, arm yourself, or therefore, because Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then if we move like through the letter towards the end, in that ending section, verse 13, he says explicitly, rejoice that you can share in Christ's suffering. Right? So throughout this letter, he's talking about suffering. And so right at the beginning in verse 1, where he says, arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking... <clears throat> he says that when we suffer and arm ourselves with, when the Christian arms themselves with Christ's way of thinking and suffering, that one, it can overcome, you can overcome those destructive human habits and passions of the flesh. And you can actually be able to live for the will of God. So that's all in that first section. He kind of ends in verse 7 with saying what living for the will of God looks like is sort of keeping this view of Christ's return, right? So we have arm ourselves with Christ's thinking and suffering, but then also keep in mind that Christ is coming back. And in between that, we can be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's what living for the will of God looks like. And then if we jump to the end, he talks about rejoicing as you share in Christ's suffering. And 12 through 19, as he talks about rejoicing in suffering, he makes a distinction between two types of suffering. In the first part, he talks about suffering unjustly, right? He gives a specific example. If you're insulted for the name of Christ... If you're suffering for righteousness' sake, it's not due to any fault of your own as a Christian. It's just because you believe in Christ. He's saying we can rejoice in that. A Christian can rejoice in that because you're going to become more like 
Christ. It's going to be good. It's a place of rejoicing. But then he also right, goes on in that end part where he gives a balance or a check. He says, but check, make sure you're not suffering for justly, right, as a murderer or because you're stealing or an evildoer or a meddler, right? There's sort of this continuum, which is kind of a big range. It goes from murder to just mere meddling. He's saying Christian, he's writing to this to these Christians, he's saying, give a check and make sure from murder to stealing to just general evil doing to just meddling, make sure you're not suffering justly. But if you are, if you're suffering because you are doing wrong, that's a good thing because it produces cleansing. So, you know, you can rejoice. And the end part he's talking about, you can rejoice in your suffering whether you're suffering unjustly because you know that's for righteousness' sake. You know you're going to become more Christ-like. Or even if you're suffering justly, that's a great thing too, because it's good for the Christians, for church, for the church to be cleansed of sin. And then in verse 17, um, he says, you know, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins... With us, what will, be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Like he's giving this implication that Christians, as you suffer, whether unjustly for the sake of Christ, or whether you're suffering justly, not only is it a benefit for you to grow and mature, like there's something about those who don't, do not yet know the gospel, who don't obey the gospel, who are going to see what you're going through, and they're going to see something different, and it's going to draw them to know God as well, which he has talked about other times earlier in 1 Peter more explicitly, but he kind of gives that implication there too. So we've got the beginning, explicit teaching on suffering. We've got the end, how to rejoice in suffering. And then I think there's this really interesting thing right in the middle, in verses 8 through 11, where he's telling Christians, above all else, to love one another. It's like he's saying, Christians, in the middle of suffering, it's going to be really, really important that you stay united. In suffering, you need to stay united. And he gives some really specific things of what that looks like to be united, right? Like, be hospitable. Don't complain about it. Use your gifts specifically, whether it's speaking or whether it's serving. Like, in specifics, stay united even in the midst of suffering. It's going to be really important. So big overview again of chapter 4. Right in the beginning, he says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh for you, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Then he ends with this whole unpacking of rejoicing in your suffering because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And in the middle, Christians, make sure you're united in suffering. Peter wants the first century Christians to overcome suffering, to not just have this natural response to suffering, but to 
arm themselves with Christ's way of thinking in suffering so they can overcome suffering. Peter, obviously it's First Peter, so Peter, right, one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus' suffering, right? He saw Jesus Christ suffer in his life. He saw him suffer during his crucifixion, and he saw him after the resurrection. So Peter, this eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is encouraging these first century Christians who have been exiled, right? They were, George talked about this a little bit in the beginning. They were likely exiled Christians who had been living in Rome. Roman government did what most governments do when there's problems. They blamed it on some minority population, kicked them all out. Well, they don't always kick them out, but in this case they did. So the Roman government exiles these Christians to Roman provinces in modern-day Turkey. So these exiled Christians, right, they've lost homes, they've lost their wealth, their inheritance, any generational wealth that they've been able to build up. They've lost all that. And now they're living in this foreign culture, experience all sorts of trials and difficulties. And their natural response to suffering was the things that we see throughout this, right? Their natural response was to join the Gentiles in drunkenness, to join the Gentiles in drinking parties and orgies, whether that's food orgies or sexual orgies. Their natural response was to be divided and attacking, not united to one another. Their natural response was one of surprise and shock and self-pity, like something unusual was happening to them that no one else had experienced. And their natural response, probably also in that part about judgment starting with the household of God, they were probably, right, instead of like, yes, God, judge me and let me grow in maturity, instead like, well, judge these other people who are really getting on my nerves. They were judging others rather than taking a good look at themselves and admitting their wrongs and seeking out how to make amends. So Peter wants these first century Christians to be able to overcome all these natural responses to suffering and to be able to overcome by thinking of suffering the same way Christ does, arming themselves with Christ's way of thinking it's like Peter's trying to tell them there's something better here. There's something better even than homes and inheritance and escaping through all sorts of wild behaviors. Peter is trying to help these first century Christians not just overcome suffering, but be able to rejoice, to have joy in the midst of suffering. So... How did Christ think? If he's trying to help them arm themselves with Christ's way of thinking, a good question for the reader to ask is, well, how did Christ think as he suffered in the flesh? And again, Peter, who he says it again in, uh, in 5 about being an eyewitness of Christ. Peter, this eyewitness, has already told the reader in chapter 2 how Christ suffered. He said, when Christ was 
had sins committed against him, he didn't threaten back. When Christ was attacked, he didn't attack back. Rather, Christ's thinking in suffering was that this is a benefit and a blessing to others. By his wounds, we are healed. And Peter also says that Christ's thinking in suffering was to entrust himself to God the Father. It says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Christ's thinking was in suffering, rather than attacking back, this can be a place of blessing and of benefit, of power even. And his focus was, I'm entrusting myself to the one who judges justly. And he says it here too, right? The, to entrust ourselves to God the creator who is faithful, down in um, verse 19. And really today, I don't know that we're any different than those first century Christians, whether you're a Christian or not. I think we often have those same natural responses to suffering that those first century Christians were having to suffering. And like them, we can't, you and I, we're not going to be able to overcome suffering unless you arm yourself with the way Christ thought in suffering. So if we're going to overcome suffering, we've got to think the way Christ thought in suffering. And I would say that first step is to entrust yourself to God as the judge who judges justly, which means you're not the judge. Nobody has to give an account to you. God is the one that people will give an account to. God is the one that you and I will give an account to. Entrusting ourselves to God also means that we recognize not only are we not the judge, we're not in control. God is the one who's in control, and we entrust ourselves to him. And I would also say in there, part of entrusting yourself to God, if you're not a Christian, if you've never come to the point where you've been like, I trust in Christ for having a right relationship with God. I trust in Christ, in his suffering, in his death on the cross. He paid for my sins so that I don't have to pay for them. That would be the first important thing to do, to really understand how his suffering brings forgiveness. He paid for our wrongs. He took on death that we deserve so that by faith we can have his life, his right standing. And even if we've done that, you know, like I'm trying to think, I, I am now almost 52. You know, when I fully put my faith in Christ, I was 19. That's a couple of years. <laughs> like that's something that I got to keep reminding myself in. Keep remembering what Christ has done for me, the freedom, the life, the right standing that he has given me. That's part of entrusting myself to God. 
And then I would say the second thing that we need to do if we're going to arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking and suffering is that we have to remember Christ flipped the natural world, the natural response to suffering upside down when he came. Suffering is now a place of blessing and benefit and power, right? Suffering is no longer this place of shame or embarrassment. I don't have to hide my weaknesses, right? Romans 8.1 says we are no longer condemned. Suffering isn't something I have to isolate and be embarrassed and draw away from people. Suffering is now something I share with Christ and can be a place of benefit for myself and for other Christians and even others who don't know God. And that's why, right, we can share. Sharing in Christ's suffering is a place of rejoicing and blessing. If I suffer, if we suffer unjustly, one, also we grow in, our, in being practiced at being able to determine, right, I know I'm suffering for righteousness' sake. I know, like being insulted for the name of Christ. I'm suffering here for righteousness sake, and I know I'm going to become more like Christ, right? When we walk through that suffering, it changes us, and we become more like Christ, like nothing else. You know, I can't just hypothetically think, oh, if this were to happen, I would be this way. But when I walk through the suffering and have to trust in God and depend on him, it changes you. It changes you physically, it changes you mentally, it changes you spiritually, and that is beautiful. And that is a place of power and blessing and benefit and good reason to rejoice. And then even if we suffer justly for things we do wrong, again, like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like, Thank you, Lord, for showing me that that sin is there. And you've already died for it, so I can just come to you, accept the forgiveness that is mine, that is ours in Christ, and not be condemned and to grow in that. If we suffer justly, right, that's what he's saying in verse 2. That's how we put sin to death, by suffering. So we can overcome. We can overcome drunkenness pursuing whatever things we pursue to escape suffering, you know, drinking, overeating, sex, attacking others, we can overcome as we suffer thanks to Christ. And that is also a place of beauty, a place of power, and something to rejoice in. And as we suffer with the mind of Christ, it can draw us closer to one another as Christians, right? We have this shared identity of suffering. It's an opportunity to be united to one another. I know George has quoted the happiness study. If you um, maybe you heard George or you've heard it, it's gotten a lot of buzz, especially in the fall I or earlier in the fall, I think the book came out. Maybe it was even before that, actually. But it's like an 80-year study it's one of those studies that they come out and you're like, really, you had to do a study to figure that one out? But <laughs> what they came out and really found is that to be happy, what we really need 
is relationships, good relationships. When we suffer, we can have those good relationships as Christians. We can draw closer to one another. When you're suffering, you can share with others in the church, I need help. Paul in Philemon says, make a bed for me. Like, be specific. This is the help I need. We can share that with one another in the church. And in the church, if somebody's suffering and they share their need with you, you can do what Peter's been talking about earlier in the letter, loving, which he says in this chapter too, tenderhearted, sympathetic, right? We can be that to one another because Christ has suffered and benefited us. We can use our gifts to serve each other, right? In specifics, we can be hospitable with one another, come into each other's home, hang out, don't grumble about it, feed each other. Like Those are simple things, but those are really, really important and good things. And we have an opportunity to do that for each other, especially in suffering. And then again, finally, like, Suffering is a place of rejoicing because if we're suffering unjustly, if we're suffering justly, if we're united together in all of that, I guarantee, I know people have said, like, I saw something different in that church, in those Christians' lives. Like, that is an amazing and beautiful opportunity as well. Suffering, right? Again, it's not a place of shame. It's a place of power and blessing and benefit when we arm ourselves with thinking as Christ did in suffering. So God in this letter, right, it seems like he's just trying to tell us humans there's something better than the world has to offer, something better than homes or society's approval, or whatever comfort, something better than this natural response to suffering. There's this Christ-like response to suffering that brings blessing and joy. But it has to start with changing your thinking about suffering. It involves entrusting yourself to God, thinking of Christ's suffering for you, and your benefit, and likewise arming yourself with that, right? You can't give to others what you haven't taken in. As we think on what Christ has done for us, we can extend that to others. And then finally, it's just learning to do good to others, right? He closes with that in verse 19, learning to do good while doing good. Um, And it ties to, right, just the church being united together and serving and loving. And I think those specifics of learning to do good, we can know pretty clearly in specifics what we ought to do if we're doing the other two, right? If we're entrusting ourselves to God, if we're thinking as Christ does of suffering, of how he's benefited us, of how suffering is a place of benefit, then figuring out those next steps of how to do good gets a little bit clearer and less murky. So I wanted to just close with um, a couple of questions to think on tonight, maybe ideally sometime between now and before your head hits the pillow and you fall asleep. (laughs) Um, My first question would be, you know, have you ever trusted in Christ's suffering for your salvation? 
And if you haven't, I would encourage you to think on that, on what Christ has done through his death and resurrection to bring us to God, to bring us in right standing with God. Or my other question would be, are you suffering unjustly for righteousness' sake? And if you are suffering unjustly for righteousness' sake, what is the benefit or the blessing in that? And then my last question would be, or are you suffering justly? Do you need to go and write some wrong? Is there something you need to confess or make amends, especially with others in the church if you're a Christian? So let me close in prayer, and then we'll have some Q&A time.